Okay, okay, is that okay? Okay, so um, the scriptures that we're going to be turning to is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you would like to turn there with me. And I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse, verse 9. Um, so from verse 1, chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I'm just going to quickly pray again. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, we we come before you in your presence. And we thank you that you have given us your son, Emmanuel, God with us. And I pray now that your word would stir our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come. And that Christ would be exalted and lifted high. And that all the glory and honor would go to him who was crucified for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, There was a a preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. I don't know, some of you might not have heard of him. Um, But he was a preacher who preached hundreds hundreds of times to thousands of people. And um, every time he would preach on the theme of the cross of Christ... He would always come to the pulpit saying, what, what a fool I am, what a fool I am. And, and studying, you know, putting more time into studying the cross, um, I, I see exactly what he means because in half an hour, an hour, you can't begin to tell. Words cannot express the glory of the cross and what it means and what it's done for us. And um, so with that in mind... I want to set the background into which Paul is writing here. And uh, so, the the people of the city of Corinth can be described as a city who who prided themselves on their wealth and wisdom. The city was one of the largest and wealthiest in Greece at the time when Paul wrote this epistle. And the city was full of famous orators and skilled speakers and philosophers, and therefore it attracted the great and the powerful of their day. 
And because of this, the Corinthians were a very proud and boastful people. They delighted to hear their famous speakers speak with eloquence, persuasive words, uh, displaying their wisdom and their reasoning, their great learning. And they were called orators, were, were their name. And they were like the celebrities of the ancient world. You know, they, the Corinthians would pick their favorite one, idolize his talents and his abilities. Sort of like today, with, with our celebrities and how the world idolizes and, and worships them. And we can imagine that Paul coming to this city would have been under great pressure and temptation to conform. You know, we can be sure that Paul was a learned man, that he was wise, that he had studied, he grew up in, in, in the pharisaical system and, and, and he had grew up under the, the best teachers that Israel had to offer. And we can imagine that if Paul coming to this city would have been thinking, look, if I'm going to bring anyone to Christ, if I'm going to do anything for the gospel here, I'm, I'm going to need to speak with eloquence. I'm going to need to display my learning. I'm going to need to show my reason. I'm going to need to use this to attract people to Christ. But we see that Paul arrived at no conclusion. Instead, he makes the determined choice to do nothing among them. As we see in verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so he preached this in, in, in the most simplest, simplest way possible. And he preached with the language of the ordinary and the common people. He did not make a display of himself, of his learning, or of his wisdom. But he made sure all the glory went to Christ, to his master, to his saviour. See, Paul knew what was needful for the Corinthians. And that was to preach Jesus and the cross to them. And as we see in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, Paul's first duty as a preacher was to make known Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the first duty of the hearer is to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And though many Corinthians had been converted by the preaching of Paul and a church had been established, which was very gifted, they had not grown to spiritual maturity. They were not growing up. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3, in chapter 3, verse 1, sorry, he calls them spiritual babes, infants. See, the boast and the pride of the Corinthian people were still present in the church. They had not laid aside the old man with his deeds, for there were divisions in the church. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Some were saying, I follow Apollos. Some were saying, I follow Peter. Some Christ. They were boasting in man and not in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Their very understanding of the gospel, truth, had become confused and distorted. So Paul remedies this by giving them a, a good dose of gospel truth. And how Paul does this how Paul goes about doing this, he brings three truths concerning the gospel. And these are the three truths I want to look at today. So my three points will be, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the testimony of God. That Jesus Christ and him crucified is the power of God. And that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the wisdom of God. So if you look at me at verse 1 in chapter 2, it says, And I... 
when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or, or with lofty speech or with wisdom. So Paul's saying, when I came to you, brothers. So Paul would come to the church, and as I said, he had planted a church. He had been there for 18 months, two years, a, a period of time. And as he left, false teachers had begun to come into the church. And they were putting an emphasis on philosophy and, 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 and wisdom as a way to know God. And they were undermining the message of Paul. They were basically saying, it was just Paul's idea. You know, it was just his idea. He came, he, proclaimed, he, he, he preached this message, but it, it was just his idea. It was, it was his own thoughts. It was his own reasoning that brought him to this place. And they were judging Paul by his delivery. Uh, we don't know exactly what Paul looks like, but um, history and, and, and whatnot tells us, you know, he was a Jew, small man, not impressive looking. You know, so they were judging him outwardly, judging him by his appearance. And, and, and you know, they were picking their leaders. They were, they were picking which one they liked most. You know, they were saying, Apollos, he's eloquent. He's an eloquent speaker. I'm going to follow him. Or Peter, he preaches with power. I'll follow him. And, and so there was this division happening in, in the Corinthian church. But here Paul reminds them that the message that he brought to them was not his own idea. It was not his own reasoning. It's, it's as if he says, do you not remember the message I brought to you? It was the testimony of God. It was God's message. It was God speaking. It was received. It was given to me. I didn't make this up. I didn't sit down and get the scriptures and try. No, the message he received by revelation, he says in Galatians. That this message of the cross, this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is the very testimony of God. And it's significant that he uses that word testimony because, you know, it, it adds force. It adds force to what he's saying. Um, yeah, it adds force to what he's saying. You can imagine if, if, I, were to, um, if I were to witness an event or a crime, um, you know, I would, I would say what I've seen. And then the police would come and, and, and they would say, okay, you're a witness, we're going to get your testimony. And then to give a testimony, you've got, to, you've got to go into the court, you've got to stand in that box, and then you've got to swear with an oath and all of these things. And if you're lying, it's punishable by law. You know, testimony is bound by the law and, it's, and, and, and your character is what makes it, what, what makes it um, uh, hold weight. And so God is saying that this message of Christ and him crucified, this is his, tes this is his testimony. And his character is in, it, is in it, his faithfulness, his truth. It is God establishing and revealing his truth. See, the Corinthian, the Corinthian context was, was kind of no different to it is today. Um, in, in, in that truth is subjective. That everybody has their own truth and everybody knows their own truth and that you, you can't say that he's right, you can't say that he's wrong. It's all to you what you want. You know, you can imagine there was how many idols in Corinth, how many different philosophies and ideas. Everybody had that. And, and, it, and it's no different to today. Everyone had their own ideas. Truth was subjective. But what's amazing, 
what's startling about this is that Paul says this is the testimony of God. That God has spoken, that this is not a new idea. But what Paul says is that when I came and proclaimed this message, the God of truth spoke. And in the midst of man's idea, truth was revealed. The truth was established and Jesus Christ and him crucified is the very testimony of God. See, in the midst of all the philosophy of man, God has actually spoken. God has given his testimony. The origins of the gospel are not man-made, it's divine. It's not man's idea or speculation. Paul did not reason it up. And that's why he's reminding them, okay, these teachers are saying that, that wisdom, you can know God by wisdom. But these are their own ideas. But when I came to you, I came to you preaching the very testimony, the very divine revelation of God, and therefore it surpasses any idea that man has. And this is the reason for Paul's confidence. This is why he says, I proclaim the testimony of God. I didn't use lofty speech or wisdom or man's wisdom. Well, why do you need to? If it's God's testimony, if it's God's truth, you cannot clothe it in man's eloquence. You cannot clothe it and make it any better. It is what it is and it must be proclaimed simply and that's it. God will do the work. You ju we just proclaim. We just make this message known. And that's what Paul's saying. I didn't need to add what I've learned in the pharisaical schools and everything. I, knew. I didn't need to add to it because it was God's testimony. And, and this is significant. In, in, if we look at our current situation in the world, the confusion, the anarchy, the, the, the despair, the not knowing what to do, why is it like this? Because there is no authoritative message. There is no absolute truth. But we as the church and the people of God who believe this word, who believe this, we have the truth. We can say that God has spoken and therefore every idea of man, every philosophy, every wisdom, everything must come under that. And that truth must reign overall. So we have an answer for the world's confusion. We have a gospel to preach. We have Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we can, we can proclaim loudly that this is the testimony of God. This is God speaking. God telling the world what he desires, what he wants, what he has fought, his plan, his purpose. The testimony of God. And, and, and he says in, also in verse 1 earlier, he says, I proclaimed it. He just announced it. He just came and announced the message to them. And, and that was it. He didn't need to do anything else because it was a testimony of God. And, and we are ambassadors of Christ. This is the same for us. And, and whoever, ha you know, we should all have a, a, a heart to take the gospel out there. But how often do we feel kind of useless and I don't know what to say and, you know, I'm not, I don't know everything. And what if they ask me questions and I don't know them? put that to the side we have God's testimony we just proclaim it we just tell them the truth about what God has says and God does everything else yes we need to have answers yes we need to look into these things but at the same time our confidence is grounded that this is the testimony of God that God has spoken through this gospel there's um an, a, an illustration of this that I like and uh but basically, it was a, a man called, uh, I believe, Robert Bruce. And um, he, he was a Scottish preacher. 
and it was back in, I don't know, the 16th or 17th century, and he's there preaching. Well, firstly, the, the kin and him had disagreements. The kin didn't very like him because what he was preaching kind of went against what the kin wanted. So he's there preaching, and the kin's up there in his royal gallery with his guys, and, and, and they're making noise, basically, while he's preaching, kind of on purpose distracting the people. And then uh, Robert Bruce, he, 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 as he was preaching, he stopped pe- preaching, waiting for them to, to stop their conversation. And he'd done that again and again, and after this happened a third time, the Scottish preacher looked up to the royal gallery and declared, it is said to have been an expression of the wisest kins. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all petty kins of the earth to be silent. See, that is the type of boldness that we should have. And he, he, he understood this. He grasped that this is God's testimony. And I'm going to proclaim it even to a kin who could have taken his life like that. But he said, the lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring through the voice of his gospel. And that's what we need to undo. We just need to unleash the gospel. Just get the gospel out there. Just proclaim it. God will work through it. God will work through it. Just unleash it. Um, so now to go to my, my second point. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the power of God. See, anywhere Paul preached this message, there was two charges brought against him. One was that it was sheer foolishness, and the other that the message was weak. See, the Jews were looking for a political type kin that would come in a, in a, in a, in a material way, and destroy Rome's rule, uh, set up the kingdom of Israel right there and then in Jerusalem. So the Jews responded to this message by asking for a sign, asking for God to demonstrate his power to prove this message of the cross. Is this really from God, they would say. We read in the scriptures in the Old Testament of God's mighty acts, of how he, bri- of how he brought Egypt of how he brought the sons of Israel out of Egypt. He sent plagues. He brought the most powerful nation at the time in the world to their knees. He parted the Red Sea. Look at the signs and the power that got used in redeeming the sons of Israel. And now you're telling us that God redeems us by sending his Messiah, the Christ, to die on a cursed cross. This is weak. What is this? Where is the power of God? And the Greeks heard the message of the cross and they regarded it as absolute foolishness. A man dying on a cross, a criminal's death, reserved for slaves and outcasts of society. This is how God saves us. The son of God on a cross dying to rescue us. Foolishness. But however, Paul's response to such suggestions is this. If you look in verse chapter 1, verse 20, in chapter 1, verse 20, it says, where is, the wise, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the folly, foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, for think, think with me. Where has the strength of men, where, where has it got us? You know, we can say, look what man has accomplished. By man's strength and power, we've subdued creation. We've populated the earth. We've built cities. We've built buildings that reach to the sky and, and above. We've subdued every wild animal. The creatures in the sea, the creatures on land. Nothing has been able to escape the power of man, the strength of man. We have created weapons of great power to destroy even whole nations. You know, think of it alone. America alone has enough weapons to destroy the earth. But yet in all of this, man hasn't got power over himself. Man is unable to put an end to murder. Unable to put an end to crime. The crime rates are soaring. Things are happening and all the people have to say is, what can we do? It was actually on the newspaper quite a while back and it just had, it just had you know, all these teenagers are dying. What can we do? What shall we do? Man has no answer. Though man thinks he's strong in his own will and his own power, we cannot control ourselves. We cannot put an end to the violence and to the misery and to the, the wrongness that's in the world. And we have no power to end this. We are, we are unable to do what is right, to love God and to love our neighbor. Look at the state of things around us. We have no power to save and redeem ourselves. And since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, man has laid under the power of sin and Satan and been unable to get himself out. The strength of the will is not enough. And the, and the perfect example of this is in the Old Testament where God, God gives his law. He gives his law to the, uh, to the children of Israel. He gives his law to Israel and he says, keep this and you will live. Now we will mostly know the history they were unable to keep it. They could not keep it. They did not have the strength, the desire, the willpower to keep the law. It was every time they would sin, repent, sin, repent, sin. There was no power in and of themselves to do this. And it's just a perfect illustration of the, the inability of man to redeem and save himself. We need help. And this is true of Corinth at the time when Paul wrote this letter. Uh, the, the, what, what was the city of Corinth known for? Had they put an end to crime and corruption? No, the city was known for immorality, it was known for division, it was known for corruption. Though they had all the, the, the idols and all the strength of man was loved and adored, they had been unable to put an end to the miseries that happened in the world because of mankind. And how we know this on a closer level, our depressions, our fears, our anxiety, have we in and of ourselves got power to set ourselves free? We are fallen from God and we are unable to get ourselves out. And the long history of man just proves this. The power of man, strength of man cannot save man, but what can? The apostle tells us in, in chapter 1, verse 18, 
For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the Corinthians had not fully grasped this. So Paul reminds them, he gives them uh, an example of himself. If you look in verse 3, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul says, look how I was among you. I was with you in weakness, probably illness. I was with you in fear and trembling, trembling at the task that he had to do. There was no power in and of myself. My words were not persuasive. I relied not on man's power, but on God's. And we have to ask the question, what had transformed the lives of these Corinthians? Was it the eloquence of man, persuasive words of wisdom, Paul's power, their own strength and power? No, it was the Spirit of God. It is because the testimony of God was proclaimed. It's because God is pleased and has chosen that through the preaching of Christ crucified, he will work powerfully by his Spirit to save and to redeem, to lift out of bondage of sin and Satan those who believe. Paul is saying, you can see the effects of my preaching was not from myself. The message of foolishness, this message of weakness, what made you believe it? It was the power of the Spirit. And the Corinthians were a demonstration of that. In chapter, uh, look what, in, in chapter 6, in, um, from verse 9, Paul says, And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And, you know, we, 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 live, we live in a day where, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of easy, easy believism, I would say, or some, something like that, where, you know, you, you're a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home, or you're a Christian because you were brought up in a Christian nation, or you're a Christian because your parents were, your friends were, you went to a Christian school, But Paul was saying that when my preach, my message came to you in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, what what is a Christian? A Christian is nothing less than a mighty work of God's spirit and of power. You know, look around. Every Christian here is the highest demonstration of the power of God. The very power of the resurrection. That which was dead has been brought to life transformed the spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 has hovered over the Christian's heart and said let there be light and he has shone into our heart to bring us the knowledge of Jesus Christ so Paul is saying that the power of God is in the word of the cross it's in Jesus Christ and him crucified 
And that's why Paul and I and we as Christians should not be ashamed of this message whatsoever. We should not be ashamed. Paul, uh, and you know, it's, it fills me with joy because this is what I have for you today. This is what Christians have for the world today. It's not to tell you to keep trying harder and to muster up strength to continue. We do not, I, I don't give you a law to obey, but a person to trust in, to cling to, to love, to know, to hold to, to have a relationship with. I don't tell you to find some inner strength hidden in you somewhere. No, the very message of Christ in him crucified is the very power of God. God's power unto salvation, which God offers us, you, this day, this hour, this minute. And all you have to do is come with faith. Like that woman who came when she saw Jesus and she said, only if I touch the hem of his garment. And she touched it and the power of God was manifested in her and cleansed her and healed her and set her free. And when we reach out and we take a hold of Christ by faith, his power becomes us, ours. His power unto salvation. His power to conquer sin. His power to conquer depression. His power to conquer everything that is against everything that's good and perfect and right and pure. And not only to conquer, but to conquer with joy. Not just to cope, but to have joy in conquering. And, and we'll be able to do everything through Christ who gives us strength. So, also now, I want us to look at Jesus Christ and him crucified is the wisdom of God. And as I have said, the Corinthians were people who prized wisdom, human thought, human intellect, human insight. You know, that by our own wisdom, we can somehow make our way back to God. And the whole Greek culture was, was built on this. Um, you know, they, they, just before, a few decades, there had been Aristotle and Plato, these, these famous philosophers who had uh, made whole ideas of how society should run. You know, they, have, they put their mind into building this utopia for society. But it had nothing. It, had nothing. it, it, was, it did not work. You know, to, till this day, they still study these guys' writings, trying to implement them in society. But they don't bring a lasting solution. You can remember that when, um, in the book of Acts, the people of Athens, when Paul came to Athens, which was in Greece, not far from Corinth, uh, the people were, were said that all they would do would spend their, time saying, uh, spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. You know, new ideas, new philosophies, new perceptions, new gods. You know, that was what they'd done. They were looking for something. And, um, you know, they were, they were seeking the questions that we all kind of seek for, the crucial questions of life. You know, why are we here? What are we doing? What's man's purpose? Where are we going? How did we get here? And they had reasoned for this over the centuries, trying to give answers And, and in some way, this is, you know, this is what the Corinthians wanted to hear from Paul. They wanted to hear something about philosophy. You know, what do you think about politics, Paul? What do you think about 
the, the, you know, what's going, you know, the politics and the economics and, you know, what's going on in society. What do you think about that? But Paul's like, he, may, he refrains and he remains resolute. He preaches to them, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can you imagine sermon after sermon for a good amount of time with just the same theme, Jesus Christ and him crucified? You know, that's how wondrous, that's how glorious it is that the, the apostle done that. And we have to ask, you know, why? You know, why did Paul stay on this theme? And he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Or another translation says, to be brought to nothing. See, the wisdom of man has, has been ineffective. It's merely trying to interpret the world around us. But it has never given us effective solutions. Books are written and published. We've got whole libraries full of books, but nothing that has been brought together by, by the mind of, of mankind has really given an effective solution. It's done bits and bobs and it's helped in certain situations, but it's never put an end to it. It's never really restored and healed humanity. And with all the religions in the world, none of them have truly brought us back to God. They've all just been man's idea. One guy sitting there had an idea. And, and then he told the world. And what do, what do the smart and, and philosophical people of our day tell us? You know, that we are products of evolution. That we don't know how we got here. That there was water on Mars one day. Okay, great. But what is that doing for us here and now? They don't give a solution. They don't tell us how to put an end, how to, how, how, they don't give the solution to change society, to change our hearts. But God has, God's wisdom has done something. In verse 7 it says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, a wisdom of God which God decreed beforehand, before the ages, for our glory. See, this is the solution, God's wisdom. And is it in a relief that God has given us his testimony? God has reasoned. The infinite wisdom of God has gone to work. The mind that thought up how to create the cosmos, the stars, the trillion and trillion of them, the earth and everything in it, the ant to the lion, the, every molecule, every atom, the wisdom that thought all of this up out of nothing has actually thought and reasoned before the ages of how to save, how to redeem. And though we can marvel, you know, even like today, it's so beautiful. It was. It looks like the sun's kind of gone a bit. But it was very beautiful in the morning. You know, and we can marvel at the wisdom. And we can marvel at how beautiful it is. But do we marvel when we come to the cross? You know, when we, when we sing these songs of, of Jesus dying for us, do we marvel at it? The same way we would marvel at a sunset or a mountain range. Is our, our, our hearts filled with that awe and that wonder? You see, the cross has done what no amount of human reasoning could ever do. You know, we could ponder and think for all eternity, yet human wisdom cannot bring us back to God. Wisdom cannot cross the chasm fixed between sinful humans and a holy God. The gap of separation cannot be fixed by the wisdom of man. But this is exactly what the cross of Christ has done. 
It has brought a sinful humanity into fellowship and communion with a holy God. I remember one time I was speaking to a, 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 a friend in my college class. Um, and he was a Muslim and I was a Christian. So we, we would talk all day, every day about religion and stuff. And, uh, you know, we had been talking about the, uh, the Bible and the Quran. And, and then finally, I was just like, look, the problem is, is, is who God is. That's the central core problem. You know, I said to him, do you believe that God is just? He says, yes, I believe that God is just. I said, okay, do you believe that you are guilty of sin? He said, yes, I believe you're guilty of sin. So then I said, how in the Quran does that come together? How can God forgive sin, forgive criminals, and yet not pervert his justice? You know, a, a judge who forgives criminals without satisfying justice is a bad judge. How does he do that? And he just looked at me like, well, he's merciful. Well, he's merciful, okay, but he's no longer just. He's no longer a righteous judge. His justice is no longer perfect. It's, it's immoral. And so, so he, he didn't have anything to say, but the thing is, I did. And I, then I told him about Jesus. And, and the, cross bring, the cross brings this together. It brings it together. And, you know, this is the problem that had to be figured out. How can the holy dwell with the unholy? How can the pure fellowship with the impure? How can the guilty criminal find pardon from a righteous, the righteous judge of the earth? How can God make sinners right with him without compromising or diminishing his justice and his holiness? After all, should not the judge of the earth do what is right? And we are all human beings. We have all sinned. And we have all broken the law. Therefore, we're all under the penalty of the judge, the condemnation of the judge. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, it says, the soul that sins shall die. The soul that sins shall die. The death of the soul in separation from God, the force of God's justice. But the, reality, but the truth is, not, not every soul that sins does die. I mean, look at God's saints in the Bible. Look at Moses, look at Samson, look at David, look at Peter. Were they not sinners? We have their records of their sins. Some of them committed sins that you wouldn't imagine to dream of, but they done them. But yet we can be sure now that they are in the everlasting bliss and in the presence of God. And how can this be? God, are you not faithful? To, we can say, is God not faithful to his word? Is the judge of the earth pervert injustice? You know, the devil could stand there. You know, in Revelation it says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses God and he accuses us. And he would stand there and just say, well, look at David, man after your own heart. Look at what he done. And now you're, you're bringing him into glory, into heaven? Look what he done. Or, or Peter. He denied you. He denied you three times. He sinned. Where is your justice, God? How are you loving him and, 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 and dwelling with him? And where is your justice? And any time the devil would come with that accusation... The father just points straight to the cross because there it's answered. In the second letter of the Corinthians, Paul says in verse 21 in chapter 5, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, what sets apart the cross of Jesus from every other death is what it accomplished. An atonement was made. 
which means to make amends between a broken relationship, to reconcile a broken relationship. An atonement was made. Christ became our sin bearer, our substitute. I do remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Christ. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And like a lamb, Jesus was led to the slaughter, betrayed by one of his followers, bound and led away, falsely accused, found guilty, though there was no guilt in him. He was whipped and mocked, and a crown of thorns were placed on his head, and he was led to Calvary's hill where he was crucified. But in all of this, what was happening? Should he have died? Should he have suffered? Should he have been put to shame? The sinless one, holy and undefiled, who had committed no sin. What was happening? Well, like it says, he was being made sin for us. He was taking our place. He was taking David's place. He was taking Peter's place. He was taking the place of us who trust in him. Um, one, one preacher puts it like this called Samuel Davis. He says, Thus, my brethren, do you see that a way is really opened for salvation through the crucifixion of Jesus? And oh, what an amazing, unexpected and mysterious way. How far beyond the reach of human wisdom. How brilliant a display of divine wisdom to bring the greatest good out of the greatest evil. To pardon and save the guilty sinner yet condemn and punish his sin. To display his justice in the freest exercise of his mercy. To show his hatred for sin and yet his love for the sinner. To magnify his law in justifying those who break it. To use something as cruel and as heinous as a crucifixion to display his holiness and his perfect character in such a way that it surpasses creation itself. These are the things that angels ponder over. These are the things that angels long to look. The son of God should become the son of man. The head of the universe appear in the form of a servant. The author of life die upon a cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. See, what philosopher, what debater, what orator could think this up? It's divine. You, you, you wouldn't sit there and just come up with it. We, we would have a better chance counting the stars in a clear night sky than, than making up a salvation like this. And that's why Paul says in verse 9, but it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And as I was, um, you know, studying and thinking over this, and there was, there was, there was a, a hymn that I came across and that I like. And, um, you know, Charles Wesley, the guy that wrote loads of hymns, you know, he said he would have given up all his hymns if, if, he, if he could have wrote this one. Um, and, it, and, and it's this, I'm not, I've not got vocals, so I'm not about to sing it for you. Maybe you guys could do that. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> it says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt and all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did earth such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? 
His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads over his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, so we, this is, you know, this is why Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because when you grasp it, when you see it in its glory, this is your only response. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my all, demands everything. That can be your response to the cross. And that's why Paul preached it, because that's the only thing that gives comfort. Wisdom won't help. The power of man doesn't help. We've proved that. If you've lived long enough, you know that by experience. Only this can help. Only the cross of Christ can truly help and set us free. And this is what saves. This is what sanctifies. This is what motivates you to fight sin. He died for me. I don't want to continue committing that sin which he bore on his body on the tree and died for. This is what helps you persevere. You know, this, this is it. This is the joy, the, the sap, the, the life that, you know, that flows down from the cross and we receive it at the foot of the cross. And, and you know, we, we believe for revival. We're believing, we're praying for revival. We're continuing to pray. We're continuing to plead. We're continuing to wait. And any time a revival happens, from what I know of church history... Anytime a revival happens, it always comes centered on the cross. The preaching is normally always on the cross, centered around the cross of Christ. You know, that, that is the theme. Many of these hymns that we, we, we even, you know, comes out of revival. That when God moves by his spirit, he brings the people of God's eyes back to the cross. That, that, that first love that we once saw. You know, do you remember when you first saw the cross when you first when God first moved in your heart and you was like he done that for me you know what was your response what was your response it was it was to give up everything for him to know him to love him to serve him the son of God taking my sin and you know look throughout church history you know this is why the martyrs died this is why they were burnt you know why they were burnt at the stake is because they had grasped this. Their hearts had been so moved and, and they had grasped and they had seen its glory. They had seen what it means that Jesus Christ would die for me, for you, for sinners, unworthy, ungodly. In no way can we merit, in no way do we deserve this, but yet he's still done it. Those nails had our sins upon them and they were nailed and he was held there. And he bore our sin. And not only that, but he bore the wrath for our sins. The justice that was due for us was completely satisfied on him. And that just gives such a peace of conscience. Not only are we forgiven, but God's justice is satisfied and we are free. We are free. You know, I, 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 brothers and sisters, I, I plead with you to, to, bring, to bring your heart to this. You know, what can... What can stir a cold heart? What can stir a heart but the cross? What can melt the heart but the cross? 
There's nothing that will so capture you and fill you with such joy and vigor to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul determined to know it. Because that was what was needful for the Corinthians. You know, their context was kind of no different from us. They had, you know, all the madness going on. But yet, this was the most important thing. That they would know this, you know, know this, not just with knowledge, but know this deep within their souls, within their hearts. So I, I want to follow Paul's example, and I want to be determined to know this. And I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, that you will, with me, that we would determine to know Christ and him crucified. That we would determine to know this in our study. When we're, you know, when we're, when we're reading, when we're studying, that we would be looking for Jesus and the cross on every page in the Old Testament. It all points to him. That we would be zealous in finding this treasure that we would be determined to know this in prayer, to ask God that you would reveal your son and his cross in me so that, that I know this love and that I lay down my life as an offering for you, as a response of such love. And I, and I want to say to you also who have never, who have never grasped this, who have never seen it, who have never tasted that the Lord is good. You know, there, there is no excuse. We have no excuse. You know, I, I have been, um, you know, I've been looking at the, the, the scriptures on, on the day of judgment in Revelation. And you know, what, what a terrible and awesome day it will be. And there will be no excuse. You know, what, what can you say? Oh, I'm not wise. I couldn't, I was ignorant. I didn't know. This is God's wisdom. All you have to do is receive it. What can you say? I didn't have the power to believe. God doesn't ask you to have the power, the strength of all. He just tells you, come. Come and eat. Come and buy without money. All who are thirsty, just come. So there is no excuse. There is nothing, nothing that we could say to God of why we do not receive this gospel, why you don't receive this gospel. Into your heart, into your soul, into your mind, and the spirit come and transform you. So brothers, I, I, I pray that, brothers and sisters, I pray that we would, we would determine to know this only and that we would be a church built and centered on Jesus and his cross. And, and, and it doesn't end there, does it? There's the resurrection and his victory and it goes on and on and there's so much that I couldn't, you know, you couldn't begin. That's why Paul was able to preach on this for two years because you can't, you know, it's, there's so much, it's so glorious. So, thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you, Father, for the message of Jesus and him crucified and its truth and what it does when we receive and believe and how you have had mercy upon us, though we are undeserving, that we have not had strength or wisdom to save ourselves, but you have done something. You have acted. You have sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. And we thank you for that. We bless you for that. Father, use your word. And may, your, may hearts and minds be helped, strengthened, encouraged, brought near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.